brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Prep Radio on time, on target. Really excited this episode to have Paco Chiarici on with us. And uh, this show is brought to you by Crate Club, a club for men, by men, of gear handpicked by special operations military veterans. Visit CrateClub.us for an exclusive promotion for our listeners of 20% off any gearbox of your choice. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we don't know how long we can keep this promotion live. So go to CrateClub.us. Use the coupon code SOFREP and get 20% off any gearbox of your choice. That's CrateClub.us, coupon code SOFREP for 20% off any gearbox. Sign up now. Uh, With that, there is no shortage of big news, kind of like a big news dump, I would say, in these past few days. And uh, the biggest of which, as we're recording today, is Julian Assange facing charges by the U.S. government uh, there's a New York Times piece up that I printed out. That did you see that uh, the picture where he looks like Santa Claus? Yeah, I did. I I think it was on this piece actually, but I you know it wasn't on what I printed out. But yeah, the New York Times piece. Uh, the United States has charged WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange of conspiring to hack a computer as part of the 2010 release of uh, reams of secret American documents, according to an indictment unsealed Thursday, putting him just one flight away from being in American custody after years of seclusion in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. goes on, obviously, and you can see that at the New York Times, but this is pretty serious shit. Yeah, I, I'm interested to read what the indictment said. And, and um, also, I mean, there clearly must have been some sort of an agreement reached between the Ecuadorian, British, and American governments. There is the actual indictment oh, is, on is the article. Oh, is it in there? Yeah. What, does it say what he was trying to hack? Or what, so they, here, what they allege that he was trying to hack into? Here, well, this is, I was going to say if this is Chelsea Manning, but Chelsea Manning is mentioned because it does say United States of America versus Julian Assange. Uh, the grand jury charges that Chelsea Manning, formerly known as Bradley Manning, was an intelligence analyst in the United uh, States Army. And, and that explains why Chelsea Manning is being held on, mm-hmm. on um, uh, not perjury, on um, contempt of court because she wouldn't testify at the uh, grand jury. Manning held a uh, top secret uh, security clearance and signed a classified information non-disclosure agreement acknowledging that the unauthorized disclosure or retention or negligent handling of classified information could cause irreplaceable, uh, irreparable injury to the United States or be used to the advantage of a foreign nation. Then it says Executive Order Number 13526 and its predecessor orders define the classification levels assigned to classified information. Some of this is obviously very legalese. Yeah, but I I mean, if he's being charged with conspiracy to hack into a government computer, then... What computer? What system? I, I'd have to look through this entire thing. So, 
Where's the conspiracy? Yeah, the single charge conspiracy to commit computer intrusion was filed a year earlier in March 2018 and stems from what prosecutors said was his agreement to break a password to a classified United States government uh, computer. It carries a penalty of up to five years in prison and is significant in that it is not uh, an espionage charge, a detail that will come as a relief to press freedom advocates. The United States government had considered until at least last year charging him with an espionage-related offense. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Going to be very interesting to see how all of this plays out. You know, I think uh, in the rearview mirror, I, I don't think it's going to pan out that like Julian Assange is an FSB asset or anything like some people think. But I do think that it, it probably bears some similarity to like the KGB's relationship with Abu Nadal. Um, people like this who are making some curious visits to places like East Germany sure. while also running terrorist operations internationally. Um, and the KGB didn't run Abu Nadal as a uh, as an intelligence asset, but they did kind of push him a little this way, push him a little that way, just let him do things. You know, just it's like one of those things like maybe we just give this guy some information and we let him do what he's going to do with it, you know? Sure. And I can see Assange being um, utilized in that way that a foreign intelligence service would give him information or push him a little bit in this direction, say, hey, why don't you go look over there and then just let him do what he's going to do? Um, I would not be surprised if that turned out to be the case. Next thing I wanted to cover, and this is a big one, of course, Netanyahu has been reelected in Israel I was wondering how long this means he's been in office, because as m many of you know, he was the prime minister a yeah. uh, short period in the 90s and then came back into power uh, probably about a decade later. So now marks 13 years total as the prime minister. It makes me feel like it's practically a dictatorship on some level. And whoa, whoa, them's fighting words. Ian. <laughs> You're going to get some nasty grams over that. Well, it, it did make me curious as to what the laws are in Israel with term limits. Yeah. So Israel, I, Israel's not necessarily a stellar democracy. I mean, truth be told, I, I looked this up because I don't I, I don't know about the term limits. And basically, here's what it is, is that originally uh, 1948 to 1996, there were no directly set terms. However, they must maintain the support of the Knesset, which has mm -hmm. an undefined term not exceeding four years. But it's still pretty much no term limits. Then from 96 to 2001, they changed the rules to unlimited undefined terms. Should these terms exceed seven years, the prime minister will not be eligible for immediate re-election. Re they got rid of that. And obviously, if that those were still the rules, then Netanyahu could not have been reelected right, again. Right. Uh, and they went back to those original terms I just stated. So there really are no clear defined term limits, which makes me think it's very likely Netanyahu will be there until he's dead. El I, Presidente for life. Yeah. And uh, uh, there's, I actually think rightfully so, a lot of articles written by more left-leaning publications saying that like a left-leaning party is dead in Israel and that you have the right-wing yeah, Likud party. I agree. Yeah, Netanyahu and the people that he's up against that face a chance are more right-leaning moderates or centrists, moderates or centrists, but none of them are really what progressives would consider left-wing. And I do think that's, that's a problem on some level, regardless of uh, my views. It's very important, I think, to have opposing viewpoints. And, and the relationship between Donald Trump and, and Benjamin Netanyahu. I mean, Netanyahu is a, a trained intelligence officer. He's playing Trump's ego like a violin. 
Um, and I worry, my, my concern is that at this point, between the two of them, they have essentially scuttled any possibility for a two-state solution. I mean, I know in the past I've been kind of cautiously optimistic and said, you know, in, in our lifetimes that might happen. You know, it could very well happen in our lifetimes that a historic compromise could take place. But with Trump moving the embassy over there with him helping Jerusalem with him helping Netanyahu recognize the Golan Heights as part of Israel, which were taken from Syria um, decades ago. And then with Netanyahu saying like, I'm going to straight up just annex the Gaza strip. (laughs) Very provocative actions obviously have, have essentially deep sixed any chance there could be of reconciliation at this point. I, I just cannot see it happening, e- even you know, several decades into the future. Now, I, I couldn't see it happening. I, I would agree because the the last leader who who I think did believe in a compromise in terms of land and peace was really Yitzhak Rabin, and I don't think there's been anything even remotely close to what Yitzhak Rabin, President Clinton, and um, Yasser Arafat yeah. did at that time, and. For those who don't know, Netanyahu being elected was originally in the 90s was kind of a reaction to what they saw Yitzhak Rabin being this like left wing guy. Yeah, like their Jimmy Carter. Yeah. And yeah. and there was it was very heated rhetoric at that time. If you research it, there were rallies of I'm not blaming Netanyahu personally for this, but of Netanyahu supporters having Yitzhak Rabin dressed in like an SS uniform, calling him a Nazi, even though he was Israeli war hero, really. Right. And he did he did say many times, like, this type of rhetoric is unacceptable and could lead to violence. And sure enough, I mean, it was an extremist Netanyahu supporter who killed Yitzhak Rabin. Right, right. He was an Israeli reactionary, I guess you could say. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I, I do consider Netanyahu, like, a far-right politician. I don't, I don't think that's really that disputable in terms of his, at least his feelings on on land a two-state solution i should say he is not a believer by any means and and i agree with you i don't see any progress uh in terms of peace in the region with him taking another turn i I mean i think he compromised any prospect of peace in order to advance his political career quite frankly um and and that's a shame that's a shame yeah uh last piece of news i wanted to get to here and this is another big one npr article here U.S. labels Iran's Revolutionary Guard as a foreign terrorist organization. The Trump administration is designating Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a foreign terrorist organization, taking an unprecedented step as it seems to increase pressure on Iran's regime. The move seems certain to bring a new level of tension between the two countries, as Iran's leaders have said they will retaliate uh, in kind. Iranian lawmakers have prepared legislation that would label part of the U.S. military as a terrorist group, according to Iran's <laughs> state-run IRNA news agency. So a lot of tension Well, there. Th- these things are not uh, happening in a vacuum. Uh, the, the relationship between Trump and Netanyahu with John Bolton, the ejection of uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis, the labeling of the IRGC uh, as a foreign terrorist organization, these are all the chess pieces getting moved around the board for preparation of war with Iran. Are, are they not a ter- terrorist organization, though? It's a fair label, right? I, I don't think it's an unfair label. I mean, I think that the IRGC and Quds Force, they launch uh, assassinations internationally, bombings, uh, all sorts of uh, subterfuge and, and, and horrible things. Um, 
I'm not saying it's necessarily a wrong decision in of itself. My point is that it's not happening in a vacuum. Sure. That it's part of a incremental strategic gambit to move us closer to war with Iran. Yeah. Well, we'll keep you updated on that. And then I have some emails sent to softrep.radio at softrep.com. A couple of good ones here. Keep them coming. This one is from Colin. Uh, Colin Poole. Hey, Jack and Ian, longtime listener. First time question here. I'm very curious if Safrep has thoughts on the significance of our $15 billion Patriot missile system sales to our NATO, NATO allies that border Ukraine, Poland, and Romania. Throughout the Russiagate saga, I have almost never heard these multi-million dollar arms deals mentioned as indicative of an aggressive stance towards Russia. Shoulder-fired missiles sent to Ukraine is often cited, and so is the ruthless annihilation of over 100 Russian mercenaries in Syria, but never the Patriot missile sales. Were it not for Safrep, I don't think I would have even known about it. How significant of a deterrent are these weapons to Russia's military? How much does Russia really care since they already have their port uh, in Crimea? It would be great if you could bring on an expert guest who is willing to delineate what this means and what it doesn't mean. Keep up the great work, guys. That's a good question, and and I think he's right. It would be great to have somebody who specializes in air defense come on and talk about that. Um, I I think that it, it just plays into the whole strategy of encircling Russia, um, as well as serving as you know both a tactical and strategic deterrent against Russian aggression. Uh, we were f- kind of freaked out by what happened in Crimea and Ukraine. And the Russians are kind of freaked out because we were offering <laughs> Ukraine and Georgia uh, membership in the NATO. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, if Russia wanted to forge, uh, you know, some sort of a Warsaw Pact type alliance with Canada and Mexico, like we would never accept that. Like, are, are you fucking serious? Like, you know, Justin Trudeau, we're coming for you, boy. <laughs> like, it wouldn't, that wouldn't end well. We wouldn't put up with it. So the Russians are freaked the fuck out. Uh, um, and I, I think, you know, the, the Bush administration was, uh, hitting pretty hard on that. They were all about creating a, a ballistic missile defense shield in Europe. We've kind of oscillated back and forth on some of that. Obama, you know, took a little bit of a step back, but, uh, I, I mean, I think it all plays into that. Um, and then also it's part of, you know, of course the, the, the military industrial complex, we got to keep up our, uh, defense sales. I mean, we sold a shitload of these systems to, uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, who else got Patriots recently? Was it Turkey? Oh, we've, we've been selling quite a few of them in the last couple of years. Yeah. Great question. And I agree. It'd be great to bring on an expert on that subject. There's just, there's so much to cover in the world, but that's, that's a big one. This one. I have a feeling that I, I kind of know your answer already to Uh-oh. this because we get a lot of these emails, but I figure it's actually been a while since we've gotten one. Jack, but- who's better, Force Recon or Navy <laughs> SEALs? <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, you, you'll see what I mean. We get a lot of these, but this is from Zach, uh, Mr. Scotto, and Jack, of course. Hello, my name is Zach, and I'm a frequent listener of Soft Rep Radio. I truly enjoy the topics discussed, guests format of the show, and of course, you and Mr. Murphy. I especially listened to the show during my time at UCLA, where I was a political science major. Not much science there. I would hear a very opinionated, silly, ridiculous side of a conflict or issue where the main thought was that it's America's fault or some whack woke theory. I I then would listen to your show where there was logic, reason, and actual thought process and insight into the issues. I thank you for keeping me and other listeners updated and exposed to multiple views on the subject. Thank you. Um... 
I have a question for Mr. Murphy, if it could be related to him. Mr. Murphy, hello, my name is Zach. And I'm, oh, we already have that, yeah, 27-year-old college graduate. I currently work for a defense company as well as two other jobs. I have always had the urge to join the military, and I'm nearing a crossroad in my life where I must choose a path. I feel like if I pass in the opportunity to join, I would have some form of regret or missing chapter in my life. Even though I'm 27, I'm very fit, have a lot of life experience, slept in a car for a few years, worked over 10 jobs, etc., and stay up to date on events to stay educated. My question for you is, should I take the plunge? I know ultimately it's my decision, but I would appreciate your two cents. Is it worth it in today's bureaucratic and divided government? I work at a Navy base as a lifeguard and am constantly exposed to the bureaucracy that plagues the military. I've researched the Navy and Marines and have ultimately come down to these two. I've looked at intelligence, cryptologic fields, and even EOD. Any insight or advice is deeply appreciated. I truly enjoy the show and your views on the subjects discussed. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, Zach. And then I I like this P.S. because I kind of forgot about this, to be honest. P.S., it would be great to get Major Fred Galvin back on and discuss China. And we did say we yes, would do that, we so should. we do have to do that. We should do that. Yes. Um, yeah, it's a good question. A lot of a question that I, I think uh, quite a few people have, as you mentioned, Ian. Um, people kind of reach that point in their life and they're like, "What do, what do I do?" I they, and it ultimately comes down to you and you know your your dream uh, and, and what it is you want out of life. Um, some people, and I, I know people, and I know of people who joined the military and went into special operations, and they regretted it because they saw things that um, their peers went on to do elsewhere in the civilian world or even in other units. Um, you know, it's like you're always chasing that dream. There's one guy who um, went left uh, 3rd Infantry Division, came to my unit when I was in Ranger Battalion, and I think he always kind of had a chip on his shoulder because 3rd Infantry Division, uh, like, was a big part of the invasion of Iraq. I um, went and saw tons of combat, and they came home and were like America's heroes. And the Ranger Regiment did a lot during the invasion, but I mean, it, they were not seen in the same light, maybe or didn't have the same recognition. So by, for, by civilians, I mean, cause do you really think civilians know exactly who's doing what, you know? No, not necessarily, but I mean, this but, is so by the veteran community. This is also, I mean, it's perception versus reality. You know, as you point out, it was his personal perception gotcha. that, that I think he regretted coming over to Ranger Battalion. Maybe I'm wrong, but that was, that was, that was what I took away from that. And that happens all the time. Like, you know, you could relieve Ranger Battalion and go to Delta Force and, you know, then Ranger Battalion, you know, jumps in, gets a combat jump and, and invades a country and are the big heroes. And, you know, you were sitting on a uh, QRF somewhere um, doing nothing. I mean, it's always like the grass is always greener on the other side. You know what I mean? It's also I, to some people would be weird regretting that you don't see all this action because seeing yeah. all this action could also result in you possibly dying, right? losing limbs. I mean, it's a weird thing to regret. And we've it, also covered, I mean, the, the human costs of war. I yeah. mean, we've talked to the gold star families. We've talked to guys about dealing with PTSD. I mean, so it is. I mean, I because I was a young man who was like gung ho for all that. Um, I understand, but um, I don't know. I, I think ideally, for somebody in that situation, you're 27 years old. You have a college degree. Um, I would look at if you really have your heart set on going into the military. First off, there's going to be bureaucracy regardless, so you're just going to have to accept that. 
Um, I would look into finding a position where you can utilize your college degree. I mean, maybe going in as an infantry grunt isn't the thing for you. Um, that way you get the most out of it and the army gets the most out of you. Um, and hopefully sets you up for, you know, whatever comes next in your life. Uh, perhaps you want to consider going in as an officer. Um, it, again, it all depends on what you want out of life and what you want out of, out of your career. Um, for someone like that, I mean, I would suggest, you know, maybe going into intelligence or counterintelligence or something like that. Yeah. Uh, for some people, they just want to experience something new and have something on their resume, even if it's not a long-term thing. And I get that. It, it, this might be a weird thing to bring up, but I would, I've always said I want to get the rapper cannabis on the show because I'm a huge fan. But he had this thriving rap career and then joined the military, joined the army, and I think his late 20s. And people were really surprised by that. The guy who's really successful in the industry. It, it all, yeah, it really depends on you. Like I was reading this article, uh, or I was reading something, I'm trying to remember where, and it was written by a guy who I knew when I went through special forces training when I was in the Q course. And this guy was like a huge, like he was totally into UFC, loved UFC, um, and, and trained like every day. Um, and then he went and joined, uh, the army and went, and went into a special forces. And I, I couldn't tell you exactly why his, what his rationale was. You'd have to ask him, but I was reading anyway, in this article, he was in special forces, came off a combat operation in Iraq, um, sat down, dump, you know, dumped his kit covered in sweat. And like the TV was on and he sees his best friend or one of a good friend is peer of his from UFC training, just like won some big UFC championship. And he's like, I, you know, he, he's like saying like, I felt like shit because here I am in Iraq and look at, look at what I could have accomplished. Yeah. Living and, with now uh, for me personally, going on combat operations in Iraq was like the pinnacle. That, like it doesn't get any better than that. But, and I'm not trying to, um, take cheap shots at this guy. Like his dream was to be a UFC champion. And, um, and he felt I, I, what I took away from the article is that he felt that he had missed that opportunity by joining the military. So it, that's what I mean when I say it really depends on the person and you know what you're looking for. Yeah. Well, the reason I was bringing up the rapper cannabis, uh, I was going to paraphrase what he said, cause I remember reading this quote, but this was the actual quote when people asked why he did it. He said, I enlisted because I wanted to get away from the music. I wanted to do something that gave me a separate de definition from what I had done all throughout my teens and 20s. I was 28 when I enlisted. And, and then for those who don't know, ironically, I mean, his name is Cannabis, and he got discharged for smoking weed. But <laughs> I, I do think that's an interesting perspective where it's like he's defined by this one thing. Yeah. And he's like, I don't want to be defined by just doing this one thing. And I would love to get him on the show because he's such an interesting yeah, no, guy. And, and I'm, I'm like a huge fan. He's probably one of my favorite artists of all time. I get it because, you know, here I am today. And it's like, I don't want to be defined by just having been a soldier, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think people want to. Uh, there, there's not just one thing to a lot of people. It's it's kind of a weird dynamic in America how it's like you go to college or even the military for this one thing at 18, and how much do you really know about yourself? Right, at right. 16, 17, when you're figuring this stuff out, graduate college with this degree, and for a lot of people, that's exactly that's what you do for the rest of your life until the day you retire, and it's. 
I don't know if we're it's meant kind of to be one, that way. Kind of one dimensional and uninteresting from my from my point of view. Yeah, um, yeah I, I think it's good to use it as a as a building block. You know, it's a foundational part of your life, and you use it to build on from there. Yeah, it's like this with everything. I'm a huge music fan, so another analogy I've I've always uh, thought of, and I was actually listening to a uh, Eddie Trunk show where someone asked about this. The original guitarist for Queensryche, Chris DeGarmo, while the band was still really successful, went on to be a pilot and left the band completely. Really? Yeah, and people were like, how could he leave this successful band? And he had he had more of a passion for being a pilot at that point. That was his dream. And sometimes you kind of got to go for these other dreams that you have, even if you've accomplished so much and you could kind of rest on your laurels and tour with this band and possibly make more money. Right, right. Yeah, it's all about the job satisfaction, you know? Yeah. So I, I think it boils down to you as the bottom line. It, it, it'd be kind of weird for you to say yes or no and make yeah, the decision without, for without knowing the guy, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, any other emails, send them to uh, softrep.radio at softrep.com. Looking forward to talking to Paco, so let's get right to that. Paco Kiarisi, author of Lions in the Sky. Joining us for the first time on Soft Rep Radio, Paco Chiarici, author of Lions of the Sky, which uh, we're recording this day in advance, but for people listening, it's out today on Amazon. Paco is a former Navy pilot and current 737 captain, also flies a Yak-50 recreationally. Great to have you on the show. Really excited to do this. Uh, the first thing I guess we'll get into, sort of what we get into with all guests, is I'd like to know what what uh, drove you to join the Navy, but also where did your interest in aviation begin? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I, I don't I don't really know where my interest in aviation began. You know, I was like a standard kid. I built the models and hung them from the ceiling and stuff like that. But um, I mean, I didn't like work at airports when I was a kid, or you know, dream of flying. My interest in aviation really peaked when I joined the ROTC to go to college. And, uh, you know, aviation is one of the four options that you get when you're, when you're uh, in the Navy ROTC. You can either go on a ship, a submarine, you can join the Marines, or you can go fly jets. And um, I got to fly in the backseat of an F-14 when I was a sophomore. <laughs> and I was hooked, man. It was great. It was like an immediate infusion of uh, drugs right into my vein. I was, I was ready to go. Very cool. And, and uh, so what, what drove you to actually join the Navy and take that step? Uh, it, it's very unglamorous. You know, I needed uh, money to pay for college and uh, I got a Navy ROTC scholarship. I didn't know much. I, I, I'm, I didn't come from a military family. My dad did a couple of years uh, in the army. He was drafted in the fifties and, you know, did his time and did the GI bill. But uh, the military and the Navy were definitely not a part of my family heritage. Um, I just, uh, it, it, I kind of fell into it. I mean, I, I like to tell people like, uh, there's no such thing as an accidental fighter pilot. You know, you got to really work your way through a, a, an amazing number of obstacles to make that happen. But I'm as close as you get. I like, I just kind of stumbled into uh, the Navy ROTC and then I got that backseat ride in the F-14. And, and from that moment on, I was just unbelievably driven and, and focused on, on making that happen. But prior to that, you know, I, anything could happen. I, you know, I could have, have gone into business or who knows sold shoes or something i'm not totally familiar with the uh process for going to flight school and everything like that but i mean were you assigned a airframe like pretty early on like you knew what you were walking on to 
No. So um, there's a couple of things in the Navy that make it uh, kind of exciting. Uh, when you are a college student, whether you're in the ROTC and you know there's a number of those scattered throughout the countries at universities, uh, or you're in the Naval Academy, at the end of that academic year, uh, everybody gets ranked. You know, they assign, they take all these different factors into account, your grades and, you know, how you do in your physical fitness tests and stuff like that. And they just kind of boil it down to one number and then everybody gets ranked. And, uh, you know, you choose according to your rank. So thankfully, when I was uh, graduating, you know, everybody in the country gets ranked at the same time. And I, I was high enough to, to go into flight school. And then flight school is separated into three distinct phases of flight training. Uh, you start off... Um, in a primary in a turboprop and depending on how you do in those first six months and for me it was the first time i'd ever flown an airplane i'd never uh you know never even been a passenger in uh, something smaller than an airliner um but depending on how you do in those first uh, few months of turboprop training you again get ranked and then you again put your choices in and if you, you know, if you make the cut, then you get to go on to go fly jets. Um, and then even then, uh, at that time, we had intermediate jets, and, and which were in the T2, and then advanced jets, which were in the A4. And you had to you know, pass certain wickets before you could uh, move on to the next stage. So in the T2, the big thing was you know, going to the boat for the first time, and we, and we went um, solo. Um, and then in the A4 uh, was advanced jets, and, uh, you know, you, everything you do in the T2 and the T34, you did in the A4, but it was much faster and, and more complex. And, of course, at the end of that six months, uh, we got to go see the, the uh, aircraft carrier again and carrier qualify. And then assuming that you passed all of those wickets um, and you got your wings, then you could uh, put in your choice for whatever airframe you were going to go fly and, uh, you know, needs of the Navy as always dictate. But uh, for me, I... Out of the training command, I got to go fly the A6 first, and then when that was decommissioned, I flew the F-14. And then after I got active duty, uh, off active duty, I flew the F-5 in the reserves for another 10 years as an adversary pilot. So, I mean, just that, that was a super long answer to your no, that's great. question. <laughs> but um, the answer is like at every stage of the game, there's uh, a weed out process or a decision-making process. Um, and... I didn't realize it till I was done, but man, I got so lucky. Oh, my timing was great. I didn't screw anything up badly. I didn't piss anybody off. Uh, and I just kind of, you know, stumbled my way through all these uh, obstacles and managed to get winged and fly these amazing jets. And, and um, I, I consider myself to be super lucky. Well, I mean, you got to fly company. Tomcats off of carriers, right? I mean, that's like being, you know, the special forces of aviation, isn't it? I think so. And I was telling Ian this yesterday. I mean, like, there's nobody more egotistical than <laughs> fighter pilots, right? They think they're the, the most cool people on the on the face of the earth. We didn't even we weren't even impressed by rock stars. Um, <laughs> I, I do feel that way. I don't know the if special you know Dan, forces I, guys. I, I was going to say I don't know if you know Dan Hampton, but you do. I, I like when I met him, I got that vibe. Like it is very rock star vibe, and not in a bad way, you know. No, and it was it was great. I mean, it was like a, a self-supporting mutual admiration society. You know, we all thought we were the coolest people on earth, which is awesome. Um, but you know, we we knew what we had gone through, and we legitimately thought like I would not want to trade places with anybody on earth, even like 
you know, Mick Jagger, whatever the, <laughs> the hottest rock star well, is. I mean, except it, for the special forces dudes, man. We always like, you know, we always step back for that. We're like, okay, you guys are way more badass than we are. We're not even play this game. Well, you know, to be, you know, a green beret or, or a Navy seal or a fighter pilot. I mean, you have to have a little bit of ego, don't you? To land a fighter jet on the deck of an aircraft carrier at night. Yeah, I don't know. You certainly have to have um, a sense of confidence and almost detachment. And and I think you know, as a special forces guy, you'll you'll understand that. Like, you know, even even though somebody has died doing this, and there are a number of times where yeah. you know you'd be flying on the ship and a, a plane would crash, or somebody you know you'd lose a plane out to sea, or or you'd see a plane hit the hit the deck of the boat. And, you know, in a, in a sort of a heartless way, they'd kind of hose the deck down and, and get back to operations, yeah. you know, and, and that's just the way it had to be. Right. And again, when you look at that, uh, in hindsight, it, it seems incredible. Most of the world doesn't do that. You would take some time off and mourn people and examine what had happened. But literally, I mean, we would crash a plane or lose a plane and a few hours later, or maybe that day later, you'd be right back at it. Um, so you developed a sense of, um, detachment and a belief that, you know, it, it wasn't you, it wasn't going to be your day. Yeah. It's, it was impossible. Otherwise, you know, you probably wouldn't do it. Um, I mean, like for me, the great, the greatest story to that example is, um, as I mentioned, when you're going through training in the T-30 and the T-2 and the A-4, you go to the aircraft carrier and you go solo, but it's during the day. When you land on a ship at night, it's a completely different animal. It's it's um, the day landings on an aircraft carrier are the most exhilarating thing I've ever done, and the night landings on an aircraft carrier are the most terrifying thing I've ever done. Uh, and it's you know in some ways it's exactly the same thing. It's the same plane, same ship, same ocean. But you know you take the light away and you take you know all sense of uh, external perception away, and it just changes it 180 degrees. Well, before my first night landing um, qualifications in the A6, uh, I I was supposed to hot switch into a plane that was landing on the Ranger. And that means that 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 plane would land and then they would tie it down while the engines were still running. And then I would jump into the cockpit uh, after the other pilot jumped out. They'd fuel it up and I'd I'd keep going. and so I tracked this thing as it was going around, doing its six night landings. And, and during the last one, I went up to the flight deck, flight deck control, and I'm sitting there watching it on the TV camera. And I'm tightening my chest strap as it's coming down to land, you know, and I'm, I'm about to jump into this jet and go fly for the first time at night. Uh, and I mean, my adrenaline level is spiking through the roof. Uh, and the jet touches down, and I can see now the jet as it's in the landing area through the big window and flight deck control. And as I'm watching it, holding my chest strap, the hook breaks, both the pilot and the navigator eject. The plane <laughs> angles into three hornets that were parked on the deck, smashes into one of them, flips over into the water, and drags a hornet into the water with it. And I'm literally just standing there with my jaw open, holding up my chest. <laughs> <laughs> Holy fuck. <laughs> Welcome to naval aviation. Um, and, you know, I flew the next day. Did they have to launch the uh, helicopter to go pull the pilot and the co-pilot out of the water? One guy landed on the deck and broke his ankle, and the other guy landed in the water. And, yeah, there's always a helicopter. Whenever there's uh, flight ops going on on an aircraft carrier, there's a helicopter uh, orbiting uh, 
it, just in, in case something like that happens, I can pluck the, the person out of the water. I had uh, this a similar experience to what you're describing in Iraq when I was in a Ranger Battalion, and uh, we would switch out, you know, one platoon during this day, and the next platoon takes the next day doing missions because we were doing so many. The other platoon got blown up. Um, they came in, and we uh, took like mops and bleach and washed all the blood and the skin and everything, all this nasty stuff out of the back of the vehicles. And uh, they're kind of like, "All right, now get your shit on. You're going out." <laughs> it's like, right? The, the war goes okay, on, I gotta man. Say, man, that's way, way more intense than my story. <laughs> the war <laughs> goes on, though. You know, I know. And but I, I understand what you're saying. Like the mentality is. I don't care what just happened. It's not going to happen to me. Um, and I mean, you can call that ego. Uh, I don't, I, I don't know that we called it ego. I think it was just sort of a, 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 a sense of denial. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There is an aspect of confidence, that. you know, like it's not going to happen to me. I'm good. I'm good to go. So is there any, any other, uh, particularly hairy stories you can share about, uh, you know, either carrier landings or anything else that happened uh, during your time in naval aviation. Yeah, I mean, probably the the hairiest thing that ever happened to me was flying uh, F5s, and um, it started off, you know, as most of these stories do, in, in a in a real boring way. I was uh, flying a cross country uh, in the F5 and going back to Navy Fallon, and uh, our squadron. Uh, CO really encouraged us to do some practice landings at different airfields just so we could, you know, you know, the government is you want to justify anything you do on paper. So I was flying into Reno and it was a beautiful day, but there was uh, like 30 mile an hour crosswinds. And uh, as I was coming into land, uh, they asked me to move from the long runway to the shorter runway because there was a bunch of airliners taken off. And the shorter runway is still 9,000 feet long. So it's not, it's not. It didn't seem at the time like a, a big issue. And uh, the F-5 lands hellaciously fast for an airplane. It, it, you know, the approach speed is about 180 knots, which is almost 200 miles an hour. Um, and since uh, there were those nasty crosswinds, I actually jacked up the approach speed just a little bit. And then right as I was about to land, one of the airliners took off. And his wake turbulence, which is kind of like the wake of a boat, if you could imagine sort of the, the wash of a boat, but its air, uh, rolled right across the uh, threshold and I started to fall out of the sky a little bit. So I goosed the power and, um, I, I, I floated a few thousand feet down the runway. And then as soon as I touched down my left tire, which was the, the upwind tire blew, but I didn't know it because the wind from that side was kept, uh, you know, the lift on that wing. And as I rolled out, I had no idea that I was missing one of the tires. So I put my nose down and put my feet on the brakes and the, and the brakes in an airplane are the rudder pedal, the tops of the rudder pedals. And I put my feet on the brakes and my left rudder pedal just went all the way to the floor. There was no, not only no brake, but no tire. And at that point I was absolutely stuck. I was too slow to take off. I was too fast to stop on the remaining runway. Uh, I couldn't pull a parachute in the airplane because of the crosswind. It, it would have weather vane the airplane, and it, I would have ended up rolling down the runway sideways. And there was no long field gear for me to drop my hook to uh, to catch. So I was kind of skidding down the runway on one tire until that overheated and blew, and then I was just skidding down the runway on on the metal hubs of the airplane. 
And uh, fortunately, I slowed down enough that when I hit the end of the runway, um, I shut the engines off so I wouldn't suck up any rocks into the engine. And then I thought I was just going to go straight, but there was just enough side slip where the plane heaved up on its side, paused for a second, and then flipped over. And the canopy glass smashed. And I didn't know this until the moment, but it's like a three-quarter inch thick plexiglass. And when it breaks, it, it breaks into like this razor sharp kind of Indiana Jones, you know, pointed daggers. And the canopy bow bent back and one of those daggers Holy shit. punctured my my throat right here. I, I know you can see it. I don't know if your podcast listeners can imagine it, but just to the left of my Adam's apple, I got a nice little scar here. Mm. And I just hung there upside down for about 10 minutes with this thing jabbing me in the throat until oh, the uh, fire rescue guys could come cut me out. That's so yeah, that was pretty hairy. They don't come much closer than that. No, I figure, you know, if I'd been going maybe a couple knots faster, that thing would have pierced my jugular and I would have bled out before anybody got there. So, Jeez, man. That, that's a crazy story. So, so what years uh, did your naval career spend? Uh, I graduated college in 87, so I started flying then, and I flew for 20 years till 07. So very stereotypical here, but that's around the time of the popularity of Top Gun. Yeah. Well, what, did you, what did you think of Top Gun when it came out? Um, yeah, I mean, I've got a funny story about Top Gun. So that F-14 ride that I told you about uh, was the summer before Top Gun came out. Um, so I, And I had no clue that the movie was coming out. I was just a college student. Uh, so the movie comes out and I of course go to see it and I'm just freaking yeah. Enamored. It's like the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, and for the only time in my life, I literally stay and watch every last word of the credits, right? Nobody watches the credits. I'm the only person in the movie theater watching the credits. And the dude that flew me in the F-14 when I was a student nine months prior turned out to have been the coordinator for the F-14 scenes. He's the guy that did that flyby of the tower that made the guy spill his coffee. (laughs) He was was the guy. And I literally stood up in the middle of movie theater. I'm like, that was my guy. That was me. (laughs) And there was nobody there. But uh, it was hilarious. And um, yeah, I mean, Top Gun definitely affected at least the first 10 years of my Navy career. Um, Miramar... I mean, I don't know if you guys heard the stories of Miramar, but it was like freaking Studio 54 in the 70s, but at an officer's club on a base. There was a line an hour long for people that were not military to get in and go party on a Wednesday night. Um, it was it was intense. And, you know, it 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 uh, that movie and that sort of celebrity status definitely permeated the F-14 community until it went away. I mean, it's the, the top, the, uh, the F-14 is still regarded as like the celebrity fighter pilot or fighter plane. Yeah. I mean, the movie is no doubt a great use of, and I, and in a good way, I know people associate the word propaganda negatively, but like a, a good use of military propaganda to get people to join, to enlist, to make the military look cool. And, and, we're big fans of Top Gun here. I mean, the theme of this show, originally, I, this, I, I've mentioned on the show before, I think, but I was using the actual Top Gun theme to end the show, and I started to think someone on that uh, movie could possibly be a listener, and it could result in us getting all of our episodes taken down or something. Right, so sure. I stopped using it for that reason, 
And people always listen to the theme of the show now, and they're like, I think of Top Gun when I hear that theme. And basically, my friend John Burns, who's an excellent guitar player, if you check out, I'll give a shameless plug, John, I think it's johnburnsband.com, uh, B-Y-R-N-E-S. But I basically said to John, can you give us something that is pretty much the Top Gun theme, but it's not the but Top totally Gun theme? totally not the Top Gun <laughs> yeah. theme. Yeah, <laughs> and, and that's, that's what people hear at the opening and the closing of this show. So every now and again, like I put up the video with uh, Rob O'Neill, and pe- people were like, I, I get the urge to watch Top Gun every time I hear the theme of this show. Uh, that's great. And it, we'll, I, we'll get into the book, but actually, what do you think of the fact that there's going to be a follow-up, I believe, like a year from now? Yeah, no, I have a couple friends working on it. Uh, it sounds like they're going to do a great job, that they're committed to it. Literally, the only thing that bumps me out about um, the film, the, the second film, is that there is going to be an F-14 in it, and uh, my my sequel has an F-14 as well. So I've got I've got to jam my book and get it out before the movie comes out so I don't get scooped by those guys. Yeah, well, I mean, come on. You you were saying that the F-14s are like, you know, the celebrity aircraft. I mean, you're not going to make Top Gun about the fucking F-35. Like, come on, dude. Yeah, I agree. I totally agree. <laughs> but, and, you know, the, the issue is there's only one country that flies F-14s anymore, right? It's the Iranians. So... It's a natural storyline for anybody that's interested in F-14s, but it's it all leads to the same place. Oh, is, so. is, is that going to be the plot of your book or is it the plot of the film? Um, I think – so I don't know what the plot of the movie is. I know that they have uh, inserted an F-14 into that storyline somehow. And like I said, I mean there's only one place where they could find one that's flying uh, you know, in, in, uh, in a fictional world. Um, and then in my book as well, you know, it's the same thing. And, you know, my, my guy's flying uh, missions over uh, the Gulf. He gets shot down, somehow manages to steal an F-14, and, and uh, hilarity ensues. But, um, you know, like that's, I said, there's only, there's cool only one country idea. anymore that flies the F-14. So anybody that's interested is going to naturally be drawn to that part of the world. I'll, uh, we'll have to get into your novel a bit. And uh, as a guy who is, you know, a ground guy, I didn't think I'd have that much interest. But when I read, uh, I read Dan Hampton's novel, uh, The Mercenary, and I actually really liked it. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting to see, like, and I'm sure you do the same thing, bring that kind of aviator's background into telling telling a thriller novel and telling that kind of story. So For sure. Yeah, I'd love to hear about you know your book and and, uh, and kind of what you brought to the table in it. Yeah, I'd love to talk about it. <laughs> so, so let's get into it then. The book is Lines of it. the Sky. It uh, it comes out as I said today for people listening as this comes out, uh, and and it's a, your first thriller. It is my first thriller, yeah. Um, I like to tell people, look, I I've, I've flew in the Navy for 20 years, but I've been a writer my whole life. Um, uh, I've written a bunch of articles, and I tried my hand at screenplays and stuff like that. But really, what I've always wanted to do is write uh, fiction, write novels, and uh, this is my first foray into that field. Um, Lines of the Sky is uh, essentially a distillation of like all the crazy stuff that happened to me when I was flying uh, in the Navy, all the crazy... Uh, you know, characters and personalities and and really every dramatic and outlandish scene that happens in the book <laughs> is is something that actually happened. Um, you know, down to the uh, the climactic battle scene, which again is a fictionalized version of of something that really happened. There was really a Chinese submarine that was getting uh, accidentally being hunted by uh, a Navy S3 and it, you know, it 
caused uh, the Chinese to launch a bunch of fighter planes. No shit. Uh, no shit. I mean, it, it really happened. That's how close. And, and they didn't realize they were hunting a Chinese submarine? They didn't. They, they were supposed to be hunting an American submarine. Oh, shit. It was shit. a Chinese submarine that just happened to be there. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, this is off, off the coast of China. It's between Taiwan, Taiwan and China. Yeah, that'll uh, cause some heartburn right there. Yeah, so they they thought they were doing such a great job. They're like, oh my god, we never we never find these American subs, and, uh, and so they're dropping sonar buoys and you know flying over this thing. This the Chinese sub captain, and again, this is a true story. He panics and he sends a message back to you know the mainland, and they scramble a bunch of fighters. And you know in the real in the real world, they defuse the situation pretty quickly. And in my book, that is the dramatic uh, the battle scene. Well, that, that is like the ultimate fear in a way. I mean, it's one thing to go to war with another country deliberately, but to have, have it happen accidentally is, is kind of terrifying. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, so, I mean, to answer, to get back to the question about what, you know, talking about the book a little bit, um, it's a thriller. Uh, so, you know, I've got a very standard, uh, start off with a standard uh, lead character. He's a uh, fighter pilot. He's uh, hard boiled. He's a hero because he shot down a couple of uh, MIGs uh, prior to the story starting, but it cost him uh, one of his best friend's lives. So he, it's a it's a mantle that he he wears heavily. He doesn't like talking about it at all, uh, and he's ready to go back to the fleet. He's been an instructor pilot for a couple of years, and he's kind of sick of dealing with these kids, and he's ready to get back into the action, um, and. On top of that, he's got some issues with uh, with women in the cockpit, women in combat. Um, and his last class, the class he's got to deal with before he goes back, of course, has not one but two women. Uh, and uh, you know, they're they're great characters. Um, the uh, the female lead character is based on one of my squatter mates, Carol Green, who unfortunately passed away uh, flying the F fourteen, um, but. She was somebody who, uh, you know, I always really admired uh, for her courage and and her perseverance. And um, her, the character in this book is essentially answering the question, you know, what would Kara's career and life have had looked like had she had she not perished? Um, and then, as I mentioned earlier, set against uh, the action and the, and the the drama of going through training and all the challenges that we discussed earlier about going through training. Uh, and the failure points um, is the steady drumbeat of rising tensions in the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. And to your point, you know, it's it's uh, it's a flashpoint. They call it a flashpoint for a reason. Like you put uh, people with weapons and training into a small area uh, in high tensions, and the chances are uh, that something could happen. And you know, like I said. In real life, the story, uh, the, the uh, MIGs were called back. But in my book, uh, my characters, after having survived each other and survived training, uh, now are thrown immediately into a confrontation uh, in the South China Sea. Was that interesting for you as a, as a former fighter pilot to kind of like war game it in your mind's eye, like what that might look like? You know, I mean, I, I shamelessly... Uh, took all the stories from when I was flying and just sort of put them in a, in a locker for, uh, for future fictionalization, you know, and my buddy, uh, who was actually in the squadron that was prosecuting that Chinese sub. When he told me that story, I literally like filed it away. This is an amazing story. Nobody will ever believe it, but it's a, it's a great story. It's fantastic. Yeah. 
Yeah, and like you've no one's ever really heard of it. I mean, at least I, I know I haven't. Yeah. Well, nothing happened, right? I mean, but this kind of stuff happens all the time, and I think now with uh, with the enhanced video capabilities that everybody has with all these HD cameras floating around, even in just fighter jets, um, we see a little bit more of it. I mean, we over the past few years we've seen uh, the Russian planes that are making uh, close passes on American. Um, observation planes, spy planes, and stuff like that. But that's been going on since the beginning of the Cold War. You know, it, that's never not happened. Right. Uh, we just have evidence of it now. And, you know, people shared, you know, on social media with, uh, you know, <laughs> fake outrage, like, oh, my God. But, you know, it's been going on for 40 years. So we have a lot of younger listeners who kind of listen to the show as inspiration. They'll say, we actually just read an email on the show during the intro of someone thinking of joining the Army uh, at an older age, at, at 27, I'm sure there's plenty of younger kids listening right now who want to do what you did. What, what advice would you give them? Um, I think the biggest piece of advice is what I mentioned earlier. There's no such thing as an accidental fighter pilot. If you are interested in becoming a Navy fighter pilot, you better really want it. And it's the same with uh, special forces. I mean, there are so many... Uh, natural obstacles. You know, you have to be physically fit. You have to have a certain degree of intelligence to pass the uh, academics and the training. Um, but there are also a bunch of artificial obstacles. Like there are way more people that want to do it than can do it. So there's a, a funnel there. Um, and, you know, there's literally every flight you go on is a final exam. I mean, if you fail it, you, you only get three strikes. If you fail three times in training, you're out. That, by the way, which is kind of an interesting shift from what you did, Jack, because you talk about in your book that you could kind of keep, you know, if eventually you can get through the qualifications. Yeah, well, they'll allow you opportunities to recycle. Yeah, but it's not like, as uh, Paco's saying, like three chances and you're done. Done deal. Yeah, I mean, I've always, so I don't know, and Jack, you're a ranger, right? Yeah, I was in rangers and then uh, SF after that. Right, so I, I don't know much about the Army. I know a little bit about the, the Navy SEALs and their training, and, you know, that bell has always fascinated me. You know, the uh, the fact yeah. that they don't they don't kick you out, you got to quit, that just blows my mind. It's such a mind fuck. It's, it's great. Um, it's not like that in, in aviation. I mean, there are certain... You know, that it, when you go on a flight, like I said, there's about 15 different things you're graded on and it changes slightly on, on every flight. But, you know, if you get enough below averages or fails, you're out. You know, they just don't want to waste their time. It's so expensive to fly those planes around. Yeah. It's so it can be dangerous, life threatening. Um, you know, it's not just yourself that you're going to kill. It's potentially other people as well. So, yeah, and there's always that pressure. Um to, to perform. And it, and so, you know, you go through your high school and your college days, uh, and you study for your tests and you, you know, you hope you pass that stress happens on a daily basis when you're in flight school, every single flight is a final exam. Um, so, I mean, I, my advice to a young person is it's an amazing world. It's fantastic. There's nothing like it. I mean, I only flew for 20 years and it feels like it, you know, I have experiences for five lifetimes and 20 books, you know, there, <laughs> there's tons of stuff. Uh, and it, and I'm reminded of, uh, many of the details, you know, now doing PR for the book, it's like, holy crap, that was, you know, all that stuff happened in just a six month deployment. You know, yeah. It's insane. Um, 
so there's nothing like it. It's, it's incredible. It's great. Uh, but you have to really want to do it. And, um, you know, I made this documentary called Speed and Angels. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but it was, um, it was a documentary about two of the last uh, kids to go through F-14 training. And they, unlike myself, they had been enamored with the F-14 and passionate about flying the F-14 from when they were 10 years old. And they, from the age of 10, they dedicated everything they did in life, like sports, academics. They both went to the Naval Academy. They, they really focused hard on becoming F-14 pilots. And, uh, you know, while I didn't quite have that level of commitment, they, they are probably more exemplary of, you know, the type of passion it takes to get through. As I said, when I was introducing you, you still also fly the Yak-50 recreationally. On the podcast we've had on Captain Jerry Yellen before he died, of course, uh, who flew the last combat mission over Japan for the U.S. at the what it was called at the time, Army Air Forces. And just about up until his death, this guy was still flying, which was remarkable. Do you wow. see flying recreationally being something that you're going to do pretty much forever? I mean, I think so. I, I did not get into aviation um, – until I went to Navy flight school. And then, uh, after that I went, you know, I became a commercial pilot and then I didn't get introduced to, you know, civilian aviation, piston airplane flying until I got out of the reserves just about 10 years ago. Uh, and I was kind of a snob, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd flown the coolest and the fastest jets on the planet. And, um, I just didn't think there was anything that was going to hold my attention. And a friend of mine, uh, took me flying in, in, uh, his two seat yak and I hadn't flown, I hadn't pulled G's in a few months, you know, and you start getting the shakes and missing it a little bit, <laughs> uh, getting the hankering for it. Um, and I went out and, and flew with these guys and it was fantastic. You know, it was just like, it wasn't quite the level of, uh, you know, flying supersonic or pulling six, seven G's in a dogfight uh, in a jet, but it was, it was close enough. And, um, so I got dragged into that world uh, and finally bought my own plane and it's, it's a great aviation challenge. You know, it's a, it's a tailwheel airplane, which I had no experience obviously flying before. It's a radial engine, um, which is very unique. Um, and it's, it's a great, um, I guess it's a pastime or a hobby. I mean, it, it's almost shameful to say that it's, it diminishes the intensity of it, but you know, it's a great way to go spend a weekend day, go out and fly twice with your buddies and pull six, seven G's for an hour and a half each. And, um, I, I can't see letting that go, certainly not in the near future. And just to get back to your book, today is the actual release day? Did I to get the that The day right? that this comes out, yeah. Oh, so yep. tomorrow. Yeah. Tomorrow will be the release date. Tomorrow's uh, the release date, yeah. So you had in the back of your mind uh, writing fiction for quite a while, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, I, I had to work up the courage to do it. I knew it was going to be... Um, a long process because writing fiction is, as you know, unlike other types of writing. Um, and I knew that, you know, the, the, my first draft was going to suck all the way through my, you know, 20th draft. Uh, and it was going to take way longer than I thought. And it was going to be more difficult, um, than I hoped. And it it exceeded all of those expectations (laughs) in terms of (laughs) pain and effort. Um, but you know, I, I, I'm extremely proud of the book. I, I got a top notch, um, editor to help me sort of take the, the words and arrange them in, in the proper manner to, uh, you know, to logically flow in a novelized form. 
uh, and I got a great agent and, you know, it's all uh, played out really well. So, uh, the effort was definitely worth it. I'm super proud of the book. It's fun. It's, it's exciting and it's genuine. So that's uh, really cool. Yeah, Yeah. no, I can't wait to read it. I'm going to definitely add it to my list. Um, Awesome. I got. A, I have a book about World War One that a friend wrote. I have to read first, but I will get. I will get to yours next. And congratulations! I mean, it's a it's a big commitment, as you found out, to to write a book, even a novel. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I don't know about your experience, but my I, I feel like I could write nonfiction fairly quickly. Um, you know, taking uh, taking real world events and fictionalizing them and and creating uh, likable, incredible characters. And then fashioning an interesting story uh, was a challenge. I thought. Um, I find uh, uh, writing fiction to be, you know, more enjoyable and funner um, because I don't have to get the facts right. Like if I fudge it a little bit, it's okay. Right. Uh, writing writing nonfiction is uh, I, I, nonfiction is more meaningful, of course, because it's actual events, actual people. But I, I really feel the pressure to like you got to get it right, you know. Yeah. I, you know, I feel that same pressure with, with, uh, writing military, you know, naval aviation fiction, because there's, there's a fair amount of hardware, right? Yes. And you got to get the, the weights and the speeds and all these things that I kind of forgot, you know, cause yep. it was about 10 years ago when I was shooting missiles. Um, but you know, I actually had a, a buddy of mine, a, a Top Gun graduate read the book, uh, and thank God, because it was a couple <laughs> like really minor, but significant, uh, errors in there that that would have been incredibly embarrassing, you know something as as small as you know the, an aircraft carrier. One of the newer aircraft carriers that I never went to only has three arresting gear wires, and in my book, in one scene, the character barely catches the four wire, and he's like, "Hey, dude, you know this? this <laughs> only got three wires." Fuck, man. And I'll right. never know, but your bros will definitely point it out to you exactly. at the airstrip next time. Yeah. But, you know, I, I love – so, I mean, what drives me to write the stories is the love of story, right? I mean, the love of the great characters and and being able to put them in these dramatic and exciting uh, situations, you know. And for the first book, um, having students going through F-18 training I thought was just such a great way to tell the story of that environment. Mm-hmm. And I, I was always fascinated by the fact that, you know, we go through – training in the airplane and you become qualified to fly whatever it is, the F-14 or the F-18. And the day you finish, you're essentially a qualified fighter pilot in the F-18 and you could go to war, but in reality, you barely know how to function. In that airplane, <laughs> right? You're just, it's a, a basic you, training. Yeah. You, the training wheels barely come off and you, you kind of know where all the switches are and, and have a very light sense of the tactics. And you could very well, and it's happened many times before. You, you know, a week later, you could be in the shit in combat <laughs> with people shooting at you, and uh, hoping you're not screwing it up. And you know, that's that was kind of the sense I wanted to uh, to portray in this book is like the excitement of going through training and the challenges, and then no shit. A week later, you're in the South China Sea, and the Chinese are flying around with missiles, and they're not happy that you're there. And uh, in in my novels, I mean, you're right. I mean, I, I put a, a lot of research into them because they're military fiction, also. And uh, you'll never forgive me. There there are a couple uh, significant errors in the books that I found. One involved a recoilless rifle. My second novel, though, I mentioned an F-16 flying off of a carrier. <gasps> yeah. 
Oh man. Yeah. Someone pointed that out to me and I was like that, that, that that's yeah, I felt shot through the heart too, because it's like, that's something even I should have known. I should have known better than that. Um, yeah. but that's, that's in there. That's in the second book. So if you get to that, if you read the book, if you read target deck and you get to that sentence, just in your mind, uh, uh erase that. <laughs> yeah, I will definitely do that. That's fun. And you're, I mean, you're a guy who has experienced in both, as you mentioned, um, you've written for loadout room, for example, shameless plug there, but you've, you've written some nonfiction stuff as well as this. So you, you have experience in both worlds. Yeah, I was actually the editor of Fighter Sweep for for a while. Yeah, you know what? I'm I'm screwing things up here. I meant to say Fighter yeah. Sweep. I'm getting mixed yeah. up with all our sites. Yeah, you were the editor and have written for Fighter Sweep. Yep. Yeah. So, yep. Like you said, I've got uh, a fair amount of nonfiction. I've written a, a bunch of articles for a variety of magazines. Um, but this was this was the big elephant, man. I yeah. wanted I wanted to write fiction. Awesome. We'll pick it up. Uh, once again, the website is lionsofthesky.com. I figured I'd give that out because it has links to everything, where, where you could buy the book. It has your Instagram, your Facebook, Twitter. And what's the name of the novel again? Lions of the oh, Sky. Oh, it's the same as the website. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Yes, exactly. So, uh, yeah, yeah lionsofthesky.com. Uh, anything else before uh, we wrap this up? This has been a great conversation. Thank you very much. No, it's been a real pleasure to be here. Great appearance there. Uh, be sure, of course, to check out Crate Club. It's a club for men by men of gear handpicked by special operations veterans. We have the Dash One Crate, the Pro Crate, and for those looking for the Holy Grail of gear subscriptions, our Premium Crate. These are all available at CrateClub.us, and right now we are running an extremely limited promotion of 20% off for all Soft Rep Radio listeners. This is the biggest discount we've ever made available, and we don't know how long we can keep this promotion live, so get on it right now. That's CrateClub.us, coupon code SOFTREP for 20% off any gearbox. Sign up today, and I should mention that we have the Crate Club Academy taking place September 27th to the 29th, at Virginia International Raceway, if you're in the area, uh, it's going to be training by guys that you've heard on here. Brandon Webb, Scott Whitner, Nick Betts. So, yeah, check that out. CrateClub.us slash Academy. Eric Davis as well. I think there's going to be other guys. So CrateClub.us slash Academy. Also, as a reminder for those who are listening, now is the time to sign up for the Spec Ops channel, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. The Spec Ops Channel premiere show Training Cell follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to the Spec Ops Channel at specopschannel.com and take advantage of a membership for only $4.99 a month. That's specopschannel.com. Sign up today. Last, if you're not already signed up at the News Rep, you've got to get on board. Expert reporting and actionable intelligence from your favorite writers you've heard on here, Jack Murphy, Alex Hollings, all the guest writers that pop up as well. Unlimited access to News Rep on any device. Unlimited access to the app. Join the War Room community. Invitations to our exclusive events, and it's all ad-free for members. We have a trial offer up right now where you can get four weeks for only $199. That's an unbeatable deal. So sign up now at thenewsrep.com. That's thenewsrep.com. And for those not in the know, we have our own SoftRep Radio app where you can download for free on uh, iPhone or Android. Uh, And we have every episode in its entirety up on there because some of these are not up on Apple Podcasts anymore. 
um, when they were behind the paywall and just added some confusion. So all those are up at SoftRepRadio.com. Uh, as always, keep up with us as well, at SoftRepRadio on Instagram and Twitter. And I know you're looking at uh, your book here because it's out in the next couple weeks, right? Oh, I'm sorry, Ian. I, I wasn't paying <laughs> attention to what you were saying because I was sitting here reading this book that was sitting on our desk called uh, Murphy's Law. Yeah. Or how how look, far look, away are we? Look, Brad Thor called it powerful, <laughs> gritty, real, an absolutely captivating account of bravery and adventure. And that's pretty high praise. Written written by Jack Murphy. My journey from Army Ranger and Green Beret to investigative journalist out April 23rd. April 23rd. At bookstores everywhere. Pick it up. Pick it up. It's it's pretty good so far. I mean, I'm only only up to, you know, page 20, but uh, I enjoy it so far. Yeah, it's not bad. I I actually am enjoying it so far. So, yeah, pick it up, guys. Um, Great appearance, as I said. Pre-orders count. Pre-orders. Get your pre-orders in. Audiobook. Um, audiobooks coming. audiobook read by you too so narrated by the author yep coming uh, soon <laughs> april 23rd um but yeah no no as i said great appearance from paco for the first time on the show uh and you know what i wanted to mention really quickly is that friend of the show uh phil labonte all that remains is going back on tour with unearth is support they're actually playing right by me so i'll probably cool. catch that cool i love unearth they're a great live band and this is i think like probably the first or one of the first tours they're doing without their original guitarist, Ollie, who passed away. And I've been kind of keeping up with all the heavy metal media out there that basically this, this <laughs> I think is such bullshit, man. So uh, I, I've talked about it on the show, kind of the feud between uh, Phil, who's been on the show, and the wife of their guitarist, Ollie, who he thinks uh, there might have been some foul play with his death, kind of has insinuated it without saying it. Um, so... Phil and the band have released like the last recordings ever of Ollie, their guitarist. Which I'm sure the fans want to hear. Like, sure, sure. They've been following this band for you know 20 years, and she has come out and said, "I didn't give them permission to like release that stuff." And uh, why do they need your permission? Honestly, it's the, it's their band. He he was in the band until he died. I'm sure he would want the fans to hear that. So I don't know if there's some legal issue with the estate or not. Yeah, it just, uh, I mean, that, that he, doesn't sound right. Was, was me. he, I mean, if he was under contract for the, an album or something with the band at the time, you, I mean, I don't know what the. And I think it's just, it's just doing the right thing in terms of the fans wanting to hear from this guy that they love. Right, you right. Know? I mean, that's. If, if, let's be honest, if you drop dead t- tomorrow, I am releasing this episode. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not calling up Benny and going, do I have your permission to, to put this up? If I get killed, if I get hit by like a city bus, I expect you guys to start running off t-shirts, like never forget Jack Murphy, you know, hashtag something like it, that. By, which by the way is kind of messed up, man. I've, uh, I've mentioned it, I think a while back, but there's so many, um, of these like, and I don't really care if they're veteran-owned, like veteran-owned T-shirt companies that still are selling shirts about Benghazi with like Gwen Doherty's name on it and Ty Wood's name on it without permission of the families. The money doesn't go to the families. It kind of fucked up on in, in the that. monetization. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I I do think if you're gonna pr- you know if you want to print a Benghazi shirt, I don't know, it's sort of in poor taste. But if you're gonna write Gwen Doherty's name on it. And the money doesn't go to Glenn Doherty Memorial Foundation. It's it's really shady. Well, it's also money. like you're using their their deaths and their names to advance a agenda. Yeah, you know. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. Suffice into it. to say, I would not be wearing that shirt. Yeah, you know. So yeah, but but it is kind of funny if they put Jack Murphy shirts, but it just yeah, with my God, face on it. Yeah, you know. God yeah. forbid if that you know d- does happen, of course. But I'm just you know. But uh, remember me, Ian. <laughs> live and rebuild. 
but yeah, I, I will probably be at that show and, and uh, the first show in Amityville. And I would, uh, I'd love to hear more, you know, as, as stuff advances with that. It really is a shame what happened. I saw in other music news, since he's a guy that I am, you know, have become friendly with, that Stained is reuniting for some uh, some rock festival, and they'll probably do a tour after that. But I've I've hung out with Aaron Lewis because of you know my association with Andrew Wilkow, and like couldn't be a cooler guy. Yeah, despite all of the uh, negative media that surrounds him at times. Why? What's what's he got? Uh... There, there's a lot of really weird shit that's happened. Is recently. he the lead singer? Yeah, he's the lead yeah. singer of Stained, and and you know it's he seems like a nice guy, super nice guy, and he's. A lot of people, I think, gave him shit for one for when he decided to do a solo country career. Really? And, and they were like, yeah, I mean, and very successful. And, and I think people like, sung the national anthem at, uh, you know, World Series game once he did that. And But I think a lot of people thought it was, like, disingenuous to go from this band that was, uh, <laughs> you know, on Limp Biscuits label to doing country. But I actually really think that's who Aaron is. Like, that's... You want to try something different. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I remember, actually, Joe Rogan on the podcast was making fun of, like, in the video for... Um, uh, country Boy, is that what it's called? I, I, I haven't heard the song in a while. But he's holding... It's a picture of him as, like, a four-year-old holding, like his granddad's gun and he was like this is as stereotypical as it gets but like that's that's really him he grew up in like rural massachusetts shooting guns and shit and and it's not him like portraying a false image it's him is uh this is his country boy this is the same guy who uh at one of the concerts the one where it was like i know you've seen the video where he's yelling at the guy who won't stand up Yes, that's what I'm saying. He's gotten controversy for that. And he's like, this one motherfucker won't stand. It yeah. turns out he's in a wheelchair. <laughs> that Oh, was it for the anthem with that? Because that's No, no, no. People. It was at a concert. No, but was he doing the anthem? Was that? I don't, no, no. It was just like, I, I don't think it was that. I think okay. it was just a concert. And like everyone was standing up, getting into it. And there's one guy who wouldn't stand up. And he called him out <laughs> from the stage. And it turned out he was in uh, a wheelchair. He, he wasn't a dick. He was like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, yeah. I didn't know. I've heard that story before from a few bands. But I don't know if, um, yeah, he's gotten, because they, they do the anthem, you know, at his country shows. I think he, he has with Stain, too. Uh, I mean, he's a super patriotic guy. He's got Don't Tread On Me tattooed on his neck. You know, uh, I have a guitar pick he gave me that has the U.S. Uh, 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 like Constitution written on the front or, you know, he's just... But he's he's gotten crap for a lot of other things. I mean, like the most recent one I remember was I, I think he was playing somewhere in America that was near the border. I could be wrong on this, but the town predominantly spoke Spanish that he was at. He was telling people to shut up. Someone came up to him and said, like, say it in Spanish to the crowd. And he was like, this is America. I'm, I'm speaking English. And he got he got crap for that. And that's just, I don't know, man. It's just him kind of being him. And uh, I don't, he's I, I, the times I've hung out with him, he couldn't have been cooler. And, and I would actually love to see a stained reunion. Because the time I saw them at um, what is now PlayStation Theater, it's been renamed many times in Times Square, uh, it was a super awesome show. I mean, he's got an amazing voice. So wanted to bring that up because I'd love to get him on the show at some point. And I think that's that's really it. We've covered a lot here. Pick up uh, Lines of the Sky. Yeah, no, it sounds like a cool book. Like I was saying before, I didn't think I'd ever really be into like aviation fiction. Like not really my thing. But um, I, the last one, the last you know book in that genre I read, I really enjoyed. So, you know, I'll definitely give this one a shot. Yeah, and and from what he was saying, it almost sounds like it would be impossible to write a, a uh, aviation thriller and not be in that world. I 
I think he, that's probably right because it's so technical, you know, that yeah. like he was saying, like he had to bring that kind of background into it. Like I couldn't see my, I could see myself and I have in my novels writing like a scene about a fighter pilot in a cockpit and he's flying. I can't imagine writing a book. I just don't have the, the background to be able to like make that seem real. You yeah. Know? Like I know uh, Brad Thor, who you just mentioned, for example, talked about, I think the first time he was on the show, he talked about this, which was with Brandon, but he said that, um, after he's done with the book, he's good friends with Marcus, Marcus and Morgan Luttrell. He'll send it over to them, ask, is this all accurate? And he said, like, they'll give him crap for stuff and be like, you got this totally wrong. And then and then he'll change it. I think uh, Aviation Thriller, it sounds like it wouldn't be as easy as that. Yeah, no, I think that's probably true. Um, Mark Greeny is another guy who writes like espionage thriller novels and um, and they're very good. Um, but he was he was also never in the military, so like he had a you know I think he went out to the flat range and like learned how to shoot and everything else and just did a ton of research. I guess that that stuff kind of works when like you go with what you know and you kind of avoid what you don't know. Yeah, I, I think it, it, it works in uh, in the author's favor. For, forgive me, audience, on this one for not knowing. Was Tom Clancy a veteran? No. Okay. Nope. Yeah. So it, it, interesting. Um, but pick it up, Lines of the Sky. And I think that's really it. Pick up Murphy's Law as well. April 23rd. <laughs> April 23rd. Pre-order now. All right. Have a, have a great weekend, guys. At SoftRep Radio on Twitter, on Instagram, at JackMurphyRGR on Twitter, at Ian Scotto. And we're out. You've been listening to SoftRep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at SoftRep Radio.